Hey, if you're taking notes, the title of the message is The Power of Christ, the Hand of Peter. I love that. The Power of Christ, the Hand of Peter. Of course, we just read Acts chapter 3, verses 1, down to basically verse 9, I believe. This is a story about two leaders. Actually, John and Peter were leaders among leaders. They were the original followers of Jesus. They were two of the original 12. And at this time, they're in Jerusalem. It's after the resurrection, as I mentioned. How many days, we don't know for sure. Definitely, it's past Pentecost. So it's probably a few months after Jesus had conquered the grave, uh, demonstrating that he is the Son of God. They're making their way to the temple. The implication of that is huge. We're going to talk about it in just a little bit. Because actually... You have Peter and John, both Jews, of course, and, and they are respecting the rhythms and the disciplines uh, of the Jewish community going up to the Temple Mount to pray, right? And they see a man in need. I think it's almost kind of this intentional kind of spontaneity. They take an interest in this individual. One thing leads to another. They're given a gift of faith. They reach out. They lift this man up. There's a miracle. It captures the attention of the Temple Mount. I've been there many times in Jerusalem. Thousands of people are like, my goodness gracious, this guy is just, this guy is just healed. Peter preaches the gospel. 5,000 receive Christ. All right. Not to be ridiculous. How many of you are tracking so far? Could you raise your hand? Okay. All right. I, I may not say that again. I usually say that, but I need to reduce that question. But yeah, I know you're tracking. Okay. So here's the thing. You have what? Well, I mean, this is a day of miracles. It's a great day of miracles. You say, well, Greg, what do you mean miracles? There's one miracle that took place. That was the raising of this paralyzed man in the name of Jesus. That's true. But listen, 5,000 people, 5,000 Jews ended up coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. That too was a miracle. And, and look, in many ways, I would say life itself is a miracle. It speaks of God's divine power and his genius. Can I hear a big amen to that? I mean, the miracle here was, all right, you have degeneration, and on a drop of a dime, there's this demonstration of resurrection and new life. Well, that's clearly a miracle. The, the idea that people's eyes are open to who Jesus is, they responded, they embraced the Lord Jesus, 5,000. That too speaks of divine power and divine influence. Please hear this. If you're here for the first time, this miracle actually and what took place tells us so much about Jesus, about Christianity, what the plan of God is in Christ. It's true because it tells us like there's two sides of the gospel, if you will. There's two sides of the plan of God in Christ. You say, what are you talking about? Well, number one, okay, I mean, Christianity, the gospel, which means good news, God's will for our life is relationship with us. As you have 5,000 who respond, they experience peace with God. They experience the ultimate shalom, if you will. And then the miracle that took place, oh, that is just a sign of not only compassion at that particular moment and demonstration of compassion, but that's a sign ultimately of what Jesus will accomplish in bringing shalom and well-being when he returns and he establishes his kingdom on planet earth. And he is coming again, by the way. Okay, well, um, what other miracles took place? Listen, uh, you have these two young men. I'm going to call them young men. They're much younger than I am now. From the north. These guys are fishermen. 
strong hands, strong backs, you know. I mean, they would have no problem lifting this guy up. I mean, even if it was dead weight, boom, just lift him up. Strong hands, strong backs. But what took place that day far exceeded any natural strength that they had ever experienced before. And what it tells us is that after coming to Christ, you guys, please hear this, the potential influence of our hands dramatically changed. It's true. Did you know that? I mean, like if you give me a basketball, you know, what's the value of a basketball in my hands? I mean, it's probably like fourteen ninety nine or something, you know. Maybe I make a few shots. But you put a basketball in LeBron James' hands, I mean, it's like worth $28 million, you know. I mean, you put a few stones in my hand, you know, it's not worth much. You put a few stones in David's hands, oh, Goliath goes down. You put a few, you know, uh, uh, nails, you know, in each of our hands. Maybe we could like construct something or, you know, or build a fence. But my goodness, nails in the hands of the Lord Jesus. Oh, you are talking about phenomenal redemption. You're talking about what Jesus accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection speaks to the fact that one day he will create all things new in himself. Let me tell you, when Peter reached down, Listen, listen, when he reached down to this guy, he made a proclamation of it. When he reached down to him, he wasn't the only one moving. The Lord Jesus was moving along with him. I mean, his hands became something so different than just pulling up nets, which I just so envious of a young man's back, you know, the strength of it and his, and his hands and things. Now something radical and beautiful is taking place. And here's just the first perspective, and we have it up on the screen. I just want to... Just introduce this right off the bat. Look, the Holy Spirit, and that means God's presence, His active presence in our life, He works through hands, you guys, that are, can someone tell me that next word? Extended. In other words, like move, like reach out to help other people in the name of Jesus. It's true. I have a theory that the reason why when we go on short-term mission trips, why There's just incredible works of the Lord, of his grace, yes, even miracles, is that what happens is, is that believers are like in the moment, they are moving, they are much more aware of potential divine appointments, and they reach out in the name of Jesus, and the Lord always blesses that in a big way. See, that's what's happening at this time. They are reaching out. They're on the move in the name of the Lord Jesus, and the Lord does a great work. You say, well, Greg, how do we kind of wrap our minds around this? I mean, obviously, this is a miracle. A lot of people come to know the Lord Jesus. Um, Is there anything more that we could pick up from this story? Of course, a bunch. Let me just say this. I don't know if you're writing notes, maybe you want to write this idea down. But, you know, I see it as kind of a cumulative catalyst. You say, what are you talking about? Well, this is a big moment in Peter and John's life. They've had the biggest moments already. They've seen the risen Christ. They've seen Jesus ascend to heaven, which wasn't a spatial ascension. It was a demonstration that he's the king. But, but if you just like go, okay, you know, look what happened in Peter and James's, or excuse me, Peter and John's life prior to this. I'm telling you, it gives perspective to why this miracle took place and why they influenced the way they did. So I want to put this up on the screen. Let me show you what I mean by this. Like Jesus had told them, 
He said, you are the, can someone tell me, salt, okay, of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. And then he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your, can someone tell me, Father in heaven. And then he said, goes on to say in another passage, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And we have the scripture references there. It kind of leads to the next point. Peter and John, let me just put it this way. Here's what's happening. They're embodying actually. They're embodying the branding, the purpose, the calling of the Lord Jesus in their life. And in our lives as well. They are embodying salt. They are embodying light. And it produced being a phenomenal hand of the Lord Jesus in their generation. Look, salt in the first century was a preserving influence. It still is today. But we use salt a lot of times just to season our food. But in the first century, it was like the refrigerant of the day. It was the antibacterial of the day. So light carries the idea of preserving influence, or salt does, excuse me. Light speaks of good works, doing something good that helps other people see who the Father is. A laborer is someone who is both salt and light that helps people physically, spiritually, and emotionally in their generation. Okay? As I said, today, salt, you know, it's an enhancer of our food and things. It's a, it's a flavorant, if that's even a word. But in the first century, it was the ancient, like, refrigerant of the first century, the big back, antibacterial influence. In fact, it was so valued that actually, you know, soldiers were paid by them being given salt. It was called a salarium, where we get our word salary. Um, it's, it's another way of saying, it's another way of saying that unless the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, unless the life of the Lord Jesus Christ actually exists in us, please hear this, and is working through us, there is decay that takes place, not only in our own lives, but in a generation as well. You say, well, Jesus said that those who follow him were the salt of the earth. Well, could you help me better understand that? Okay, yeah, look, here it is. In the context in which Jesus said that, he's saying that humility is salt. He's saying a dependence upon God is a preserving influence. He's saying being merciful to other people it is a, is a refrigerant, is an antibacterial. He's saying being a peacemaker it is beautiful salt as well. Can I hear a big amen to that? Right? I mean, it's like, hey, listen, if you remove humility and being a peacemaker and mercy and empathy and compassion and righteousness and sexual purity from our own lives and lives in a generation, then you've got major breakdown. Major breakdown. Um, so he's saying, look, you... You are the salt of the earth. And they're like, like, are you talking national Israel, Lord? I mean, you called the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be a light to the world, right? And that ultimately Messiah would come through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, are you saying we as the people of Israel are the salt of the earth? He's saying, look, I'll be more specific. I'm talking about those who follow me. And that means us as well. The salt of the earth. Just think about that. And you know, salt makes itself known, right? 
I mean, the reality is, is that you probably came to know the Lord because a little salt rubbed off on you. I, I don't know. It, it was may, maybe like you were out on a business trip and there was a follower of the Lord Jesus and you knew he's a Christian and he just clearly demonstrated that he was faithful to his vows, you know, and to his family. Or just or a neighbor that just really took an interest in another and was empathetic and sacrificial. It's like, man, that mercy, that love, that beautiful purity, that's awesome. You know, I, I, I love how Timothy Keller kind of summed this up. He said, you know, it was extre- extremely common in the Greco-Roman world to throw out new female infants to die from exposure because of the low status of women in society. The church forbade its members to do so. Greco-Roman society saw no value in an unmarried woman. And therefore, it was illegal for a widow to go more than two years without remarrying. But Christianity was the first religion not to force widows to marry. They were supported financially and honored within the community so that they were not under great pressure to remarry if they didn't want to. Pagan widows lost all control of their husband's estate. And when they remained But the church allowed widows to maintain their husband's estate. And finally, Christians did not believe in cohabitation. If a Christian man wanted to live with the woman, he had to marry her. And this gave women far greater security. Also, the pagan double standard of allowing married men to have extramarital sex and mistresses was forbidden. In all these ways, Christian women enjoyed far greater security and equality than did women in the surrounding culture. Is that not awesome or what? Hey, listen, maybe you're here for the first time. We all know John 3.16, right? In fact, let's just say it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him shall not but have everlasting life. Just think about that for a second. You know, the idea of perishing just doesn't speak of eternal ramifications. It also speaks of a breakdown, a disintegration. And man, we see that. In our generation, in a big way, we're seeing a breakdown take place. It's like Jesus busts disintegration, breakdown, decay. You know, he's like the ultimate salt, if you will. And, and look, there's a misconception out there. And that is that, you know, that the love of God is just so narrow and crazy. Look, the, the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is a love that would hate anything that would undermine what would protect you and be in accordance to your highest good. It's like, you know, I'm so blessed to be a a father and now a grandfather and things. And it's like when you're raising kids, there's influences and there's realities that you know are not their friends and things. And it's not a personal issue with your child. It's like you hate or, you know, you terribly dislike that idea or that influence that would pull them down. I mean, look, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Man, that was true 2,000 years ago. It is true today. And let us be faithful ambassadors of John 3.16 today. Can I hear a big amen to that? How important it is. Because I have a feeling that's going to pop in a big time way. Because people see a breakdown and they're thinking, okay, what's the answer? You know, is it political? Is it economic? Look, remember, 
This miracle that took place was twofold. It was not only physical. It just gives us little flickers of the glory that will be known in the future. Woo, hold on a second. I have a back issue. Have you noticed I've been walking around like a nervous cat? Have you noticed that? I'm so sorry. Oh, boy. I'm thinking, oh, Lord, please, I don't want to have a back issue. My, like, final message, but I'm having a back issue, okay? So, okay. How many of you have back issues? Could you raise your Oh, really? Whoa, okay. So, yeah. But I want you to be empathetic towards me, you know what I mean? Oh, it's just crazy stuff. Hmm. So sorry. Okay, there's my son, my beautiful second-born son. I bet you he's running to get a chair for his dad. Why? Because I'm getting old, that's why. Right? Okay, here's the thing. If I, I could do pretty good, but then I lean over. Because now my eyes are not as good, right? So I'm like leaning over, trying to read my notes. I recently had an eye test, and the guy said, do you want me to put little bifocal things down there? Thank you. And I'm like, I don't need that. What are you talking about? Um, he knew exactly what he was talking about. Hey, when Jesus said, real quick, when Jesus said, you're the light of the world, what does that mean? Look, you're you're a preserving influence of godliness and righteousness and purity. That's great stuff. I mean, the reality is, is like love and actually hatred towards what would not be towards one's highest good and what's best for them actually works hand in glove. I mean, the Lord was really concerned about the condition of man to the extent that he sent his only begotten son. Salt is a good thing. You're the light of the world. Whoa, what does that mean? In short, that God has put you in the world so that the world can see what God is actually doing in the world. To begin to connect the dots that there is a heavenly father. How does that strike you? You know, you you wonder how that struck those who Jesus was actually speaking to. I mean, Lord, you're saying that... As we follow you, we're the salt of the earth, the refrigerant of the first century and future generation. You're telling us that we're the light of the world? Exactly. Absolutely. In fact, not only that, when Jesus said, you're the light of the world, he said, look, a city that is set on the hill, you got to get this. The idea of being upset is that, look, I have you, like where you're at, for a specific purpose and influence. The sovereign hand of God has set you where you're at, in your home, in your church, in this community of Auburn and Placer County. Okay, he has set us here by his divine purposes and his sovereign hand. You say, Greg, I'm having a hard time, you know, buying into the idea that I'm the light of the world that would help a generation connect the dots that, uh, the, the, the fact that there's a heavenly father who loves us And now I'm learning that I've actually been strategically positioned where I am by the sovereign hand of God? Absolutely. And I'll tell you a good reason to believe it. Because Jesus said it. He's the one that said it. Keep in mind, you guys, often what seems a little bland to us, even when we're stepping out in courage or faith and love or making Christ known, where maybe we're not really feeling some sense of divine presence, the recipient of the one who is being blessed by the good work, oh, so often to them, it's like, my goodness, Lord, thank you so much. To them, they sense the Lord's hand and his blessing. To us, often we're like, you know, it just seems so natural. I, um, 
You know, it's just a hug. It's just, I took an interest. I smiled. I loved. I prayed for them. But to the one who's receiving it, oh man, it says, thank you, Lord. I, I needed that so much. Hey, let's go back to the context and, and kind of add to this cumulative influence that prepared them for this day. Keep in mind, Peter and John had been told to wait in Jerusalem as well as the other apostles to start where they were, to not leave. So it's a beautiful idea, beautiful picture, beautiful reality. It's like, okay, I want you to start in Jerusalem. I don't want you to leave. This is where I want you to start. I've set you here in Jerusalem. This is where I want it to begin. It's like the Lord has us in this church. The Lord has us in the city. He has us in Placer County. He has us strategically here. Can I hear a big amen to that? That's what the Bible teaches. That's what the Lord Jesus teaches. And then the Lord gave his life in Jerusalem. He resurrected in Jerusalem. He ascended in Jerusalem. The church waited on the Lord in prayer. Then you had Pentecost 50 days after the resurrection, where you have the knowledge of the grace of Jesus Christ exploding from Jerusalem, and how it, of course, is exploding all throughout the world. 3,000 coming to know the Lord that day. So let's pick up verse 1. I mean, that's what's happened. You know, salt, light, labor, and then all of this incredible, most immediate context. And they're in Jerusalem. Now look at verse 1. Let's just, let's just check this out. Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. This is huge an implication. Because what this is telling us is that Peter and John, leaders among leaders, are participating in community prayer. Disciplines inherent within Jewish culture. And these prayers took place at 9 a.m., 12, and 3. And the ninth hour was 3 in the afternoon. Peter and John, they could have blown this off. Because community disciplines of Jewish culture was not the basis of their relationship with the Lord. And yet it tells us that, just hear this, godly disciplines are so important. In other words, a little sanctified sweat of prayer and Bible meditation and making a contribution to the church family as a Christian, because we're all important to the church family. I mean, those realities are not the basis of our relationship with our Father. The basis of our relationship is that we're in Christ, we have His unconditional love. But they're actually essential to personal growth and the health of the community as a whole. Can I hear, hear another amen to that? Do you guys see the difference there? I mean, listen, huge that Peter and John are actually participating in disciplines inherent within Jewish culture at this particular time. And, and what I think is incredible is what happens if they didn't show up at this time? I mean, because they were like rhythmically, hey, let's, let's go pray, and maybe they were thinking evangelistically already, but I, 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 I don't think actually they woke up that day and they thought, you know, today's a day I'm going to say to someone, paralyzed silver and gold I don't have, because our wives are out shopping, stupid joke. It doesn't matter. All right, all right, so it's like someone I don't have, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. I, I, I don't think they're thinking that. They had no idea this was going to happen. But you, just a killer little point. Like, you guys are here. We're all here. It's awesome to be here. Is not the Lord blessing? Is he not encouraging? Is not his spirit working in your heart and mind? It's just happening. And it's so important that we are together. It's so important that the church gathers together. So much is missed out when that's not the case. And what a picture this is in another way. Because Peter and John walking together, well, it kind of reminds me 
of what the Lord is doing with the church families of Crossroads and Calvary Auburn. It's like Peter and John walking together as one, you know, making Jesus Christ known, being used by the Lord in a great way. Can I hear a big amen to that? Some of you, that may have gone over your head, so let me share with you a little bit of what is taking place actually today, something beautiful, something that we believe the Holy Spirit has brought together. But I've been talking about last couple weeks, so I'm going to make it really short, but you know, I'd say about five, six months ago, the leaders and I began to seek the Lord, and we were asking two big questions. One was, Lord, what's the best at this time for our church family to ensure that they're best fed, best loved? And the second one was, Lord, what is best for the cause of Christ in the city of Auburn, in Placer County, as it pertains to our church? Lord, you have a special mission for us at this particular time. And we sought the Lord, we went through a process, we were considering various options, and we believe without a, without a shadow of a doubt that the Holy Spirit put together the fact that we need to close ranks, close ranks and become one with the sister church in our area, which of course is Crossroads Church, which is really a Calvary Chapel. And a little trivia, the same pastor that started Crossroads, which is really a Calvary Chapel, and Calvary Auburn. Well, I, let me rephrase that. Actually, there was one guy who planted both churches. And so I think it's kind of cool that they're actually now coming together in a beautiful way, closing ranks. So we believe this is something the Lord has put together. When you close ranks is the idea that, you know, you get together and put your strengths and your assets together. And, you know, there are... There are there is strength in numbers. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's like it's awesome that Peter and John are walking together. The Lord sent his disciples out in two. There is strength in numbers. Can, can I hear an amen to that, right? But our, our, our real strength is the person and work of the Holy Spirit. I mean, it's the Lord in us and through us. I, I mean, there's, there's a kind of a reason I'm saying that. You know, I've been told by a few pastors this week, that down the hill, you know, you have believers sometimes that will just go from church to church to church to church by the thousands, actually. Now, I don't know why that is. I'm sure there's a whole story behind that. I'm not trying to imply that it's intrinsically wrong or something. What, what I, because, well, what I'm trying to say is, look, there's strength in numbers, but the real strength of our lives is the person and work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. And we have to understand we live in a generation that is so consumer-driven. Like, what's in it for me, right? And, and if and it's meeting my expectations, I'm there. Or Commercial-driven. If it's popular, I'm going to buy into it. Celebrity-driven as well. But, but these are values that are the antithesis of a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, in a lot of ways, we, we need to be like Peter and John, who are together... The Lord is with them, and if the Lord's with you, who can be against you? But they're a minority in Jerusalem. It's like, would we be willing to follow Jesus Christ if we really feel the pressure of being a minority? Well, we follow him because he's true. Can I hear a big amen to that? We don't follow him because we're consumers or, you know, we're commercial-driven value. If it's popular, then we buy into it. We don't follow him because... Um, 
We feel good. This is a, a celebrity type of status in some way. We follow the Lord because he is true. And, and I want to commend, if I can just say quickly, so many of my precious brothers and sisters for so many years, you know, just being here at Calvary, valuing the lo- love for Jesus, valuing his word, having an evangelistic zeal to reach a generation for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's going to continue. I just want you to know I am so proud of you. Hey, in verse 2, it says, a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried whom they had daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, to ask alms from those who enter the temple, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked for alms and fixing his eyes on him with John, Peter said, look at us. I mean, this is none other than some spontaneous intentionality in giving attention to another person. I mean, how important it is, you guys, that we take an interest in other people. Just remember, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We are in Christ. I mean, we are his hands and feet. I I just think of Moses when he looked on the plight of the Jews in Egypt. I I think of Nehemiah who looked upon the broken walls and lives of Jerusalem. I think of Jesus who stopped to just take a look at the blind man, Bartimaeus. I think of Jesus who just spent time on the Mount of Olives looking at the city of Jerusalem. Here's the thing. I'm convinced of this personally, interpreting a little bit. They stopped. They took a look. One thing led to another. They had an increased burden for this person. They were, I believe, kind of reminded, man, we're the salt, we're the light, we're the labors, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. I mean, it's like God has called us. He's purposed our lives. We're, we're on a mission here. And, and the Holy Spirit gave them a gift of faith. It's like, hey, silver and gold we don't have. I, I know you, that's what you're expecting. I mean, silver and gold are good. It can buy you a bed, not necessarily buy you rest and get you a vacation and get you a lot of things. But, oh, but Jesus said, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses soul? Look, there's... There's something a whole lot more valuable than just silver and gold. Can I hear another amen to that? He says, look, I actually have something a whole lot better for you. In some ways, I can imagine, you know, say, hey, look at us. No, no, hey, hey, look, look, look up at us. You know, I, I just want you to know, silver and gold I don't have. Maybe this guy's thinking, man, could you just step aside? You know I mean? I'm looking for some silver and gold, but what I have, I give to you. Oh, it's just something so much better. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it tells us in verse 5 that he's expecting something. He's not going to get what he's expecting for. He's not even going to get what he's asking for. Aren't you glad that the Lord hasn't given you everything you have asked for? Because Father knows best, big time. And he never, ever gives a stone. He always gives bread He always gives blessings. You can trust that. And Peter said, silver and gold I don't have. I mean, he's just probably thinking, what a bummer. You know, I'm reminded of an article from Psychology Today. It was entitled, On the Road to Happiness. And they penned, compared to 1960, the America today has double spending power. We also have twice as many cars per person, color TVs, VCRs, microwaves, answering machines, computers, 12 billion a year worth of brand name athletic shoes. And then they ask the question, but what has this economic growth meant for morale? And over the same period, depression rates have soared. 
Teen suicides tripled. Divorce rates have doubled. The percentage of children born to single parents have sextupled. The violent crime rate has boomed. The accumulation of material goods is at an all-time high, but so is the number of people who feel an emptiness in their lives. I mean, silver and gold, we don't have it. I mean, look, look, we all have temporal needs, and silver and gold has its place. Money is, you know, is important to meet needs that we have. But just what I'm going to give you is something far better. You know, Augustine said, you formed us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in you. I'm just here to tell you, my friend, you, your soul, like your intellectual, emotional, volitional life can find rest. Because you were made to know the Heavenly Father in Christ flat out. Every one of us are really deep down inside wanting to get back to the Garden of Eden to have relationship with the one who made us and created us, have an intimate one. And I just want you to know that can happen in your life this morning. No, seriously. And when Jesus said, you know, deny yourself, in context, he was telling the guys, you you got this agenda. You think following me, I'm going to put you in these positions. I'm going to rule and reign in this generation. Jesus is coming. That's going to happen. But I want you to think differently. You're going to have to deny self-management and your agenda And you're going to need to pick up a cross, which is like, hey, you're going to have to be willing to be perceived as the minority and follow me. And why would it be that if we followed Jesus, we would be the minority or we would feel some sense of opposition or a fish out of water? Because we live in a world that's broken, that's why. So like when there's courageous love or courageous justice or courageous purity, you know, it's like it goes against the grain of the world. That's why. That's why Jesus, you know, was perfect in righteousness and method. And as a man, it's like he felt the anger of men. He felt the opposition. Why? Because it's a broken world that he came to make right and whole. I love this. Check this out. We have this phrase on the screen. But what I do have, I, what's the next word? Because I, I give you. Think of the alternative there. Hey, what I do have, I don't give you. I mean, I have something that God has blessed me with, but I'm going to just hold it. It's going to be some indulgent thing. Look, what I do have, I give you. My brothers and sisters, please hear me. What's in your hands, so to speak, has radically changed since you came to know Christ. It's like a basketball in LeBron James' hands. It's like worth you know, 28 million. I mean, you have so much to give. You have your story to give of how the Lord transferred your life. You have the Holy Spirit who indwells you, wants to work through you. You have love. You have forgiveness. You have the life of Christ to work in and through your life. We have so much to give. Hey, like silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have, I give you. I love that. The point number three is, look, Peter and John, they made this proclamation of faith in Jesus. And then here's, here it is. They acted on the Lord. They acted on it, upon it, and the Lord powerfully blessed them. So it's like, okay, look, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give to you in the name of Jesus, because he's the son of God 
who gave his life on the cross, resurrected his sin. He's coming back. He's true. He's alive. He is with us. I believe that. He wants to touch people's lives. It's like they, they made that proclamation. Then they just, they obeyed. And as a result, something incredibly powerful took place. May I say, in your life, the most powerful proclamation you will ever make is, is the proclamation of like, Lord, I believe in you. Lord, I, I confess to you that you are who you claim to be, the Lord, and that you resurrected from the dead. And Lord, I need you. Forgive me. Come into my life. Look, in all of our lives, we're really like this paralyzed man at the gate beautiful in the Temple Mount. You say, what are you talking about? Um, the Bible says the wages of sin is death, it's breakdown, it's decay, it's disintegration. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ. There's a paralysis of guilt. There's a paralysis to kind of get past our past. There's a paralysis, a death when it comes to facing the greatest challenge we face, which is death itself. I mean, it's like we all need the Lord's touch. Can I hear an amen to that? We all need him. And he reached down to us. It's like through Pete and John, it was, it was just an embodiment of, of, the, of the Lord's grace, his unmerited favor in this guy's life. It's like, I'm going to give you just a bunch of love. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve. I'm just going to, you know what? I, I, I'm going to give you myself, Jesus is saying. May I say this morning, there's nothing more wonderful in life than the Lord himself. Like if you're here for the first time or billions of times, listen, Jesus said he stands at the door and knocks and if anyone would open the door, and it's just, you know, hear his voice and open the door, he will come in. And when Jesus comes into your life, he, he is forgiveness. He is joy. He is righteousness. He is life. I mean, it's all in him. Is he not wonderful or what? And it's like, okay, well, have you opened your heart to him? I mean, look, we're all kind of like this beggar, right? We live in the world of the temporal and just meet temporal needs and stuff. And temporal needs have their place. There's no doubt about it. This guy needed food. He needed support. But the Lord steps in and goes, look, here's the thing. I want to give you... It's like what your greatest need is. I'm going to give you myself. I want to bless you with relationship with me as if Jesus was speaking. And that's what he wants to do with you as well. And in a few moments, I'm going to just give an invitation to anyone here who would like to open their heart to receive Christ. Um, I don't know. I, I guess it stands to reason this guy could have just said, you know, um, I'm going to resist what you're doing, Peter and John. Peter and John, silver and gold, I don't have. In the name of Jesus, stop. No, no, stop. Stop right there. I just don't believe him. I don't believe he's alive. Stop. I, I'm not interested. I mean, that's possible. Jesus said there's a broad way that leads to destruction. Many go that way. There's a narrow way that leads to eternal life. Few be that find it. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except to be through me. And he proved it. He demonstrated it by conquering the grave. He loves you. The Lord loves you, loves you, loves you, loves you, loves you, loves you. Enough not to leave you the way you are.
He wants to bless you. I mean, this is really an invitation. It's not an invitation to come to a church. It's not an invitation to even agree with everything that I've said. It's, it's an invitation to follow the one who, if you were the only one on planet Earth, would have given his life for you, who hung bled, gave his life on the cross, was treated as if he committed every stinking sin in human history. He was treated such. Three days later, conquered the grave. Forty days later, ascended to heaven. Rocked the city of Jerusalem and continues to touch people's lives. And I believe that's what he's doing in your life this morning. Hey, you're not too young, you're not too old to open your heart to him. Do you sense your need for him? Do you sense his call in your life? You say, Greg, what must I do? One, recognize your need. Like, who doesn't need forgiveness? And to say, Lord, forgive me is really saying, I value life, that there are realities that pull life down. Forgive me, Lord. The greatest sin is to reject the one who not only created us, but wants to recreate us in relationship with him. And then realize what the Lord has done. He, how he died on the cross and resurrected, and then receive him. He really is just a prayer away. And so I'm going to give an invitation in a few moments if you'd like to open your heart to him, and we are praying for you. That's one of the main reasons we're here this morning. We're praying for you, and I don't want anyone leaving having not just opened their heart to Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? And then church family, in a few moments, this is what we want to do. We, we want to pray. We want to ask the Lord to afresh awaken us and open our eyes to his presence in our life, to the power of Christ in us, and to afresh offer him our hands in this season of our lives.